Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios. 
all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of August, St. Evans is supporting the Women's Prison Association, empowering women to redefine their lives in the face of injustice and incarceration. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. 
Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast who remembers that the first thing I ever bought on eBay was a Hello Kitty contact lens case from Japan. And you know what? It was so cute. <laughs> Seriously, it came with even like a little tiny bottle for a contact solution. Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 91, part two in a series about Etsy called, you know it, The Etsy Sodes. But this episode is really more of an eBay sode, which ugh, that does not sound very cute. <laughs> As I was writing and researching Etsy, I realized that I couldn't tell the story of Etsy if I didn't first break down the story of eBay. Because not only does Etsy exist thanks to the systems and innovations created by eBay, eBay also invented and normalized the idea of buying stuff from strangers on the internet, which we all do all the time now. But go back in time, get yourself a time machine, no big deal, and go back to say 1995 or 1997 or even 2000 and tell your mom that you're about to order her birthday present from a person on the internet, just a random person on the internet, maybe on the other side of the country and see what she has to say. She'll probably be weirded out. I remember my mom was super weirded out by how into eBay I was. <laughs> so today is all about eBay. I'll give you the history, you know, the rise, and then the, I don't know, maintain altitude of its business because there hasn't been a full fall per se. We'll touch on the dot-com bubble of the 90s and how eBay really helped inflate that bubble. And we'll hear some of the reasons sellers over the years have been angry at eBay, but they stick around because they have no other option for their business and their livelihood. For those of you who sell on Etsy and have been doing it for a long time, this is probably already sounding a little familiar. There's so many parallels here, and I think you need to hear the older, longer story of eBay to see the story of Etsy in full focus. To cap this all off, a special guest will join me in the second half of this episode so I can tell them a wild and recent story about eBay involving prank pizzas, slight vandalism, and lots of intrigue. Also, like, major federal laws being broken. <laughs> Are you excited? Because I have to say, I'm pretty excited. But first, let's take a moment to thank some new supporters on Patreon. First up is Aaron Love, who is the owner of Firecracker Fabrics in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
I am obsessed with what Erin is doing to help her customers so more sustainably and ethically. And I know that is no easy task because the fashion industry is just as complicated and confusing as the fashion industry. So thank you so much for your support, Erin, and for all the hard work that you do. Next is Allison Johnson of Athens, Georgia. You know, I've never been to Athens, but it's on my list for future travel, hopefully in our RV. I, I'm sad to say that I've never been to any of the southern states, and that is a problem. I've never even been to Florida to go to Disney World, because that was something that like middle-class people got to do when I was a kid, and I definitely was not middle-class. So I want to go to the south and Athens specifically very soon. And maybe I'll get to meet Allison when I'm there. So thank you so much for your support, Allison. Next is Rebecca Joy, aka the person behind Flux Bene. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because she was a previous guest and just such a thoughtful and intelligent person. What a delight to have on the show. I felt so lucky to have her as a guest and now she's a Pegasus sponsor. So thank you so much, Rebecca. Lastly, but not leastly, Jessica Pasteris not only loves brunch, she also loves clothes horse. There's a way that you can love both, I promise. And she made a one-time show pony donation to clothes horse, which means she'll be a guest on the show at some point. We don't know when yet, but stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for your generosity, Jessica. If you, yes, you would like to support my work on clothes horse via Patreon, you can learn more at patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast. You'll get access to some heavily researched episodes. Seriously, some of those episodes involve eight to 10 hours of just writing, as well as some pretty cool swag. And I'm contemplating for fall, the clothes horse book club will pick a book each month or two. I know a lot of us are way too busy for all that reading, so I don't want to do it too often. And we'll meet virtually to talk about what we read. Patrons will get free access to the book club meeting. Everyone else can contribute like $5 to join. I'm thinking the first book, this isn't for certain, will be Jean Ryla's Hip Home Eck, which I discussed in the last episode. I just received a copy from Thrift Books, and I want to say it cost me like four bucks. And I'm enjoying it so much. So stay tuned for more information for that. And if you're looking for something to just get you really excited about a crafty, more sustainable lifestyle, definitely get yourself a copy of Get Crafty. You can't tell the story of Etsy without talking about eBay. We already talked about eBay, I swear, like half a dozen times in the previous episode. And that's not just because they both start with an E and with a Y and have two letters in between, which is really weird now that I think about it. But as I mentioned in part one of the series, aka the previous episode, eBay really gave a lot of people the ability to start a small business without spending a lot of money. Sure, you might need some actual inventory to sell, a digital camera, which is hard to say with a straight face. Remember digital cameras. And of course, you would need some shipping materials to send these orders out, but you didn't need a ton of inventory. You didn't need a cash register, a store lease, employees to work in that store, and so on. You didn't need to take out a small business loan or even write a business plan to start an eBay business. You didn't even need to build a website or spend money on marketing. 
eBay did all of that for you and it introduced you to the customers without really any effort on your part to meet those customers. Sure, you could give your listing more detail, better photos, a better title, but overall, eBay brought a captive audience to the seller with very little work on the seller's end. eBay was born in 1995, just four years after the birth of the internet. And like a lot of legends, eBay began its life with a different name. And that name was Auction Web, which to be fair is a pretty accurate definition of what eBay is, right? No confusion there. I do still laugh, however, when I hear someone call the internet the web. (laughs) It's like one of my favorite things in old Lifetime movies. They always do such a bad job of the internet in Lifetime movies. And the same thing with episodes of Law & Order, even older episodes of SVU, maybe even current episodes of SVU. They say the web. They make up bad websites. It's amazing. Anyway eBay, aka Auction Web, was created by computer programmer Pierre Omidyar as part of a larger personal website. One of the first items sold on Auction Web was a broken laser pointer for the smoking hot price of $14.83. Omidyar was a little confused about why someone would buy a broken laser pointer, so he reached out to the winning bidder to ask if he understood that the laser pointer was broken and the buyer said i'm a collector of broken laser pointers and auction web and later ebay initially was a home for collectibles the longtime completely fictional backstory of ebay was that omidyar had a girlfriend who loved vintage pez dispensers and he built the site solely as a way for her to buy more Pez dispensers. This was completely untrue, but a really adorable story. He just wanted to build something that allowed people to trade directly with one another. And that was, at least at the time, a significantly less sexy story. So he went with the Pez story. And you know what? It brought more toy collectors to eBay, sort of like an added bonus eBay soon became the first website to offer person-to-person sales, meaning you weren't making the purchase from eBay. You were making the purchase from another person. eBay was just the platform. And this was a pretty wild and groundbreaking idea at the time. But it kind of became the idea that we encounter the most on the internet. Okay, that's not true because there's also blogs and social media and whatnot. But this idea of person-to-person sales, there are a ton of platforms that are part of our day-to-day lives now in 2021 that do just that. We've got Poshmark, Mercari, Vinted, Depop, Reverb, and of course, Etsy. To say that eBay crawled so Etsy could fly Is that the right saying? I'm not really sure. Whatever that saying is, is not an understatement. It's 100% true here. Without the technological innovation that made selling stuff to one another easier and safer, like online online payment, easy shipping, easy accounting, we would not have Etsy or any of the other resale platforms. Furthermore, eBay normalized the idea 
of buying stuff from strangers on the internet. In the early days of eBay, the average person who probably didn't even have internet access in their home could not even understand how or why anyone would ever buy something from a stranger on the internet. Now we do it all the time, right? eBay was just a hobby for Omidyar until his internet service provider informed him that his site was getting so much traffic that he would have to upgrade to a more expensive plan, like a $250 plan. So he decided to start charging for auction listings, and his community of sellers was not upset about this. The site changed its name from Auction Web to eBay in 1997, named after Echo Bay Technology Group, Omidyar's consulting firm. The domain named echobay.com was already taken by, guess who, a gold mining company. Bet you didn't see that coming. I didn't. So he shortened it to ebay.com. In 1997, the company received $6.7 million in funding from the venture capital firm Benchmark capital. That's a lot of money for a startup even now. But the late 90s were kind of a wild time for this because everyone with money wanted to get involved in internet business. Young people were being told to study computers and programming in college and they would be guaranteed a life of wealth and success. And it really did seem like anyone could make a fortune off of this new thing called the internet. What happened, like with all things that are super hyped that everyone wants to get a part of, this created a bubble, an overinflated sense of the scale, profitability, and value of the internet. Possibly because relatively few people owned a computer and had regular access to the internet in their homes. Possibly because technology just hadn't kept up with all of the businesses that were opening on the internet. I mean, the internet of this era was not very cool. It looked terrible. You couldn't watch videos. You couldn't really do very much shopping online. You couldn't really share a lot of content. Nonetheless, everybody wanted to get in on it. But eventually, the bubble burst, as these things do, and that happened in the year 2000. Lots and lots of people in that industry lost their jobs. I actually knew people who were older than me who had lost their jobs working on video games and internet things. I don't even know what internet things they were, but lots of people lost their jobs. Japan even went into a recession thanks to a lot of money being lost on these technology stocks. At that moment, in March 2000, a now five-year-old eBay was actually in merger talks with Yahoo, another one of the biggest tech companies at that time, and that merger fell apart. But it's important to keep in mind that both eBay and Yahoo were the kinds of tech companies that were getting investors all excited about the internet in the first place. I just don't think you have this late 90s internet bubble and then bust without eBay and Yahoo. Anyway, back a few years previous, in 1997, eBay got that $6.7 million in investment from a venture capital firm, which 
If you listened to the last episode, and I'm sure you did, you know that that kind of money comes with serious strings attached. And those strings are exponential growth and profitability. The thing is, it's thanks to companies like eBay that investors expect that kind of wild money making because eBay really actually achieved all of that. And what happened is they set the bar really high for every startup after that. I've told you before, I'll tell you again, I've had to go to so many meetings with potential investors and, you know, basically play out in front of them really ridiculous scenarios that all guaranteed exponential growth. Just like doubling your sales year after year after year. Just things that don't, in my experience, happen very often, especially these days. So Meg Whitman was hired by the board as the eBay president and CEO in March 1998 because they needed someone to come in and add some structure and strategy. At that time, the company had 30 employees, half a million users, and revenues of $4.7 million in the United States. Not bad, but not what eBay became, right? During Whitman's 10 years at eBay, she left in 2008 to pursue politics unsuccessfully. We'll definitely be talking about that year, 2008, a lot as it intersects with Etsy. Anyway, during Meg Whitman's 10 years at eBay, she grew it to more than 15,000 employees and $8 billion in annual revenue. And to be clear, Whitman wasn't just some rando brought in to take care of the business. She had a lot of very impressive experience. She began her career in 1979 as a brand manager at Procter & Gamble. She moved around to other companies through the 80s, from the Bain & Company, which is a consulting firm, to the Walt Disney Company. I don't know if you've heard of them. They have something with a mouse involved. To Stride Right, which was the children's shoe brand that a lot of us wore as little tiny kids. And eventually she landed as the CEO of FTD, which was the flower delivery service in 1995. But two years later, she moved to Hasbro, where she oversaw Play School and Mr. Potato Head. And I know you know who he is. But most importantly, she brought the Teletubbies to the United States. And sometimes I'm relieved to see the Teletubbies mentioned by others, because I always worry that the entire concept and all of the merch associated with the Teletubbies was created inside my brain during this one summer in my very early 20s, where my boyfriend and I were partying particularly hard. There were raves involved. There were skirts with lots of pockets involved. There were strange futuristic rocket dog shoes involved. It was a year that Teletubbies could have been born in my brain, but it wasn't. (laughs) But this is not a podcast about Teletubbies. This is about eBay. Well, in the beginning, eBay was focused, like I said, on collectibles like toys, comics, coins, pottery, and vintage clothing. Beanie Babies were actually a major draw and seller on eBay at the peak of the Beanie Baby bubble. At some point, Ty, the maker of Beanie Babies, had tried to run its own eBay-style Beanie Baby exchange on its site, 
but it just couldn't keep up with demand and the site would crash. So all of these beanie baby maniacs migrated to eBay. Even today, which I would say is most definitely not the peak of Beanie Babies in our world, right? Even today, there are more than 300,000 Beanie Baby listings on eBay, like right now, today, as I record this. But I cannot emphasize enough how much of a big deal Beanie Babies were to the eBay business in its early years. In fact, in 1998, when eBay went public, it was required to file an annual report with the SEC. It's very normal. All publicly traded businesses do it. In the risk factors section of that annual report, the company noted that eBay's dependence on the continued strength of the Beanie Babies market was a major risk. Like if that Beanie Baby bubble were to burst, which spoiler, it did, would eBay go out of business? Well, regardless, investors weren't scared. They didn't say, oh, we better skip out on this because this Beanie Baby thing is concerning. Instead, Omidyar and his first employee, Jeffrey Scroll, Jeffrey Scroll, immediately became instant millionaires on the first day of trading, with shares selling at almost triple the target price. My friends, this is the kind of wild and crazy success story that creates massive tech bubbles. When you hear about this, you're like, of course everybody wanted to get into so-called internet business, right? And no wonder so many people lost their jobs and money in the late 90s and early aughts on, quote, internet business. <laughs> Under Meg Whitman's leadership, eBay became a household name. She had the site rebuilt because it was very shaky and prone to crashing. She created organization around departments and leadership, and she expanded the categories of product that one could buy or sell on the site to a point where you could find just about anything. In 2000, eBay had 12 million registered users and a cyber inventory of more than 4.5 million items available for sale on any given day on the platform. In 2001, it had the largest user base of any website. It was, it was at the top of the world. However, 2001 is a pre-social media era. <laughs> of the internet. I mean, it was just different, you know? We weren't spending as much time on the internet as we do now because there wasn't much to do. You might look at some websites, read a little bit of news, go shopping on eBay, but, you know, you weren't going to connect with your friends or watch videos or you look at beauty blogs and things like that. In the early days of eBay, most purchases were paid for via money order. I swear, I mean, I guess in the past couple years, there have been a few other times where I've had to purchase money, money orders. And the only reason was for weird landlord situations where they wouldn't take a check or a money transfer for like a security deposit. And the act of having to procure a money order 
was so Herculean in my mind. It really just involved going to the post office. But it just felt so foreign to me because this wasn't something I'd done anytime recently. But I have many er memories of young me buying Hello Kitty stuff and records. Those are my two favorite things to buy on eBay in, you know, the early aughts and literally going just about anywhere to buy a money order. You could get them at a convenience store, at the grocery store, of course, the post office, and, you know, mailing that off to pay for the auction I just won. Every once in a while, a seller would accept personal checks, meaning like a check from your checking account. For some of you who are really young listening to this, that probably sounds really weird and foreign. I guess you could say a check is a piece of paper that says you that means money. I don't know. But then is money a piece of paper? Anyway, let's not explain personal checks. Let's just move on. Most sellers didn't accept personal checks because people could bounce checks, which has always been a, f- a hilarious phrase to me, the idea of bouncing checks. It implies that they're rubber. I think I've heard someone refer to someone as writing rubber checks, um, but they these checks do not, in fact, bounce because they are paper. But basically what that means is someone would write a check, the seller on eBay would go to deposit it, and they would find out that the person who had written that check did not have enough money in their checking account to cover it. And then the seller would be out the return check fee that the bank charged them, because that's the thing. You know banks love love a good fee. And if someone bounced a check on you, that fee might be $25. It might be $45. So now you've just lost money selling stuff on eBay. And most likely, I mean, you would be a really bad eBay seller if you'd already shipped this item without depositing that check. But some people would do that, and then they would also be out that actual item. So sellers went with money orders. A buyer would have a week or so from the end of an auction to mail a money order, and then the seller would ship the order upon receiving said money order. So the average transaction of purchase to receiving the purchased items would often take anywhere from two weeks to a full month. I mean, what a wild way to go shopping. It was inconvenient for everyone involved. As a buyer, you have to go buy a money order. As a seller, you have to take the money order to the bank. And you have to hope that the person's going to send you the payment and not leave you hanging because eBay would also make you wait, I want to say, 10 days after the auction end. And if you hadn't received a payment then, then you could like file a claim and re relist your item. But I'm pretty sure you had to wait quite a while, which when you're trying to run a business, well, that sucks, <laughs> you know? Anyway, then came PayPal, which allowed people to pay online for their purchases. Fun fact, Elon Musk, one of the original leaders of PayPal back when it was called, I want to say X.com, It was rebranded as PayPal. Peter Thiel became the CEO of PayPal. He is a very scary guy who literally destroyed Gawker. I think he's wild and libertarian, gives lots of money to Republican candidates. Go look him up. This is not an episode about Peter Thiel. But here comes PayPal. This allowed people, just average people, to pay other just average people for their purchases without this whole ritual of 
buying a money order, putting in an envelope, addressing it, putting the stamp, dropping it in the mailbox, all that stuff. It was an instant payment. And this, this was a major game changer. By 2002, 70% of all eBay auctions accepted PayPal payments, and roughly 25% of all eBay purchases were made via PayPal. PayPal was, for years, making a fortune off of those transaction fees, and eBay wanted a piece of that pie. After all, wasn't PayPal basically making money off of all of eBay's hard work? So it made perfect sense for eBay to buy PayPal that year in 2002 for a cool $1.5 billion. In 2008, Meg Whitman left eBay, you know, to go run for office, and she was replaced by John Donahoe. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because Donahoe is now the CEO of Nike. Years later, after Donahoe had been in his role at eBay for a while, billionaire Carl C. Icahn would call Donahoe, quote, either incompetent or negligent, as he urged Donahoe to spin off PayPal into its own company because he was worried that Donahoe was running PayPal into the ground along with eBay, saying, quote, to win a war, you need to have great generals that have proven their competence and loyalty. Unfortunately, it is obvious to us that it is lacking at eBay and PayPal. PayPal must be separated now, and that was in all caps, and N-O-W in big letters, so that great management can be attracted. Management that can make the right decision and know when to sell at the right time, not the worst time. That was six years after John Donahoe became CEO of eBay. So it was 2014. And one of the many reasons that Icon was calling out Donahoe involved a really botched sale of Skype in which eBay definitely took a massive loss. But I want to continue talking about 2008, that year when Meg Whitman left eBay. We left off in 2008 with the Etsy story in the last episode, and we'll be picking up there again. But 2008 was a pivotal year for Etsy. It was also a pivotal year for eBay, and it was the year that a lot of vintage sellers left eBay and moved to Etsy. Sweeping changes happened at eBay in 2008, with John Donahoe saying that eBay was at a crossroads. Quote, we need to redo our playbook and we need to do it fast. And to be clear, eBay was coming off years and years of exponential growth and profitability. Yet, I will tell you this, that's never enough. I cannot underscore that enough. As a person who has worked for businesses that are four years old, 10 years old, 40 years old, and all the other numbers in between, they all had one thing in common, which was that each year's sales must be bigger and more profitable than the previous year, no matter what. And that's how you end up with progressively wilder and longer Black Friday sales. That's how you end up with brands laying off workers to maximize profitability. That's how you end up with the quality of clothing getting shoddier and shoddier 
while the prices we pay as customers stay about the same or increase slightly. And that's how you get workers, whether they work in the stores, the warehouses, or the garment factory, getting paid less and less with each year. Well, eBay couldn't start putting stuff on sale or cutting back on its store staff because remember, eBay really didn't sell anything. It provided a service. eBay made the bulk of its money from new listings and from sales. They shifted their focus away from their sellers to customer acquisition and retention, meaning more new customers who stick around and buy stuff again and again. Basically, eBay was saying, the ticket to making money is not the sellers. Okay, it has nothing to do with them. It's all about customers, the buyers, not the sellers. Well, let's talk about some of these major policy changes. The first one, and this made sellers very unhappy, sellers were no longer able to give buyers feedback. Yes, so in the early days of eBay, and by early, I mean up until 2008, when you bought something on eBay and received it, you would go onto eBay and leave a review for the seller. This is standard, right? We do this on a lot of the resale apps even now. But what made this a little bit different is the seller also left a review for the buyer, meaning like it could be like A plus, great seller, paid fast payment, great to deal with. It could have been like waited a week to pay or never paid or check bounced. I mean, it it could be a lot of different things, right? But without this mutual review process, if a buyer never paid or scammed a seller, the seller couldn't say anything bad. It went against everything eBay had stood for since the beginning. Mutual trust between the seller and the buyer. Mutual ratings only reinforced that trust. But over time, especially with the addition of the buy it now feature, eBay was becoming more like a regular online store and less like this community sales platform. And that mutual trust was dissolving. There was no longer a relationship between the buyer and the seller. The relationship was less real than, say, your relationship when you order cat food on Amazon. According to eBay, buyers who'd had a bad experience with one seller were less inclined to buy from anyone else on eBay. And eBay felt that buyers feared retaliation from sellers if they left an honest review. So let's just delete that possibility and ensure that the seller has a good experience. So while that mutual trust reinforced by the mutual review systems benefited sellers, the threat of a customer not coming back to eBay, well, that hurt eBay. After all, it was in eBay's best interest to host as many transactions as possible since they got a piece of every transaction. More transactions equaled more profits for eBay. So let's make sure that the buyers f- are feeling only good vibes all the time. Well, enter auction bites. That's B-Y-T-E-S. Lots of people used that bites pun in the late 90s, the early aughts, the early days of the internet. I don't know if any of you remember this legendary style blog called Style Bites. 
so good, although there were a lot of H&M clothes on it. It was a different time for H&M. Anyway, the creator and star of Style Bites just kind of quit the internet one day, and my friends and I were distraught. My friend Rachel and I talked about this for years. Anyway, we're not talking about Style Bites. We're talking about Auction Bites, which later became e-commerce bites. This was a blog run by Ina and David Steiner. The couple had started the blog back in the early days of eBay in 1999, and it became a resource for eBay sellers, and then later, Amazon sellers. And I'm introducing Auction Bites now for two reasons. One, because they did a survey of seller sentiments in the light of these 2008 changes, and two, because in a little bit, I'm going to tell you a wild story about this blog and eBay. A wild story. <laughs> well, this survey by Auction Bites of close to 2,000 sellers in 2008 found that almost 99%, more precisely 98.7% of sellers said that changes would have a negative effect on their business. In eBay's Seller Central Forum, a husband and wife team selling as Manchester 689 protested, We work very hard to maintain a 100% record, but this includes being able to vet or weed out idiots. Now that sellers can no longer leave honest appraisals of buyers, it means that we can no longer pre-vet buyers, which is important to call out because being able to vet buyers was an important thing for sellers. Many sellers wouldn't sell to buyers who had poor or minimal feedback. Often sellers required a minimum star rating to even place a bid. So if a buyer didn't have that, like someone who'd bid on a product, which the seller could see, the seller could cancel their bid. So this was a major blow to eBay sellers. And the reason a seller would do that is to protect themselves from non-payment, which another thing that I saw is that with the removal of buyer reviews, non-payment went through the roof. And the thing about non-paying buyers is like, as a seller, you still have to wait. It might still be 10 days to relist an item. So you lose time and you lose your chance to make money. This was a major blow to eBay sellers. On top of that, eBay increased its final value fee or FVF, which is the cut eBay takes for each completed sale. But eBay did say, hey, sellers, if you get the highest satisfaction ratings, you'll get preferential treatment. You'll be a power seller. And when users search eBay, you'll be at the top and you'll get discounts on that FVF. But a lot of sellers were like, whatever. This new system would only benefit the biggest sellers and everyone else would be lost in the shuffle. A lot of eBay sellers at that time, so this is 2008, and this is in an early, early version of Amazon, like not even close to what Amazon became today. A lot of these sellers even then saw this as eBay trying to take on Amazon, which it turns out is a fool's errand. I will say that that probably was at least a little bit of the problem at the time. Nonetheless, more and more sellers were leaving eBay with these policy changes and heading off to Etsy to sell vintage or off to Amazon to sell their brand new stuff. Over the years, more and more sellers found themselves 
more and more unhappy. Go ahead and search eBay doesn't protect sellers and you will find an almost infinite amount of results, many in highly emotionally charged all caps. One of the major pain points for eBay sellers has been eBay's mandatory returns, which I did not even know that you could return things that you bought on eBay that feels wild to me, like going to a flea market with a returned item. But apparently, it's very common and very painful. And it's also a really easy way of, you know, scamming sellers. For example, here's a 2017 story from The Guardian. I'm reading directly from this article. Clive Rose, that's not his real name, but it's a very interesting choice, I will say. He sold two handmade Japanese swords on eBay, worth a total of 1,940 pounds. The buyer, once he had received them, demanded that the cost of the more expensive sword be slashed. Rose refused to haggle and asked for the items to be returned and a refund issued. Eventually, a box arrived. Rose said, we couldn't open it until we signed for it. On the label, it said two items were inside. When I had signed and opened it up back up, we found the cheaper sword badly damaged because of poor packaging and a brick. The other sword, the much more expensive one, was not there. The buyer claimed Rose had forfeited his rights by signing for the parcel, while eBay's response was similar. Although Rose sent photographs and message threads to support his case, eBay took the money from his PayPal account and refunded the buyer for both swords. Rose, who has a 100% satisfaction rating from other buyers, had his account suspended for withholding eBay seller fees and is now threatened with debt collectors because his PayPal account is overdrawn. eBay said at this time that they were going to crack down on this kind of scamming, that they were aware it was happening. But Catherine Lewis, another Londoner, had a similar story. She sold a coat on eBay. The buyer claimed that it never arrived, and because Lewis could only provide proof of postage and not of delivery, eBay forced a refund. And it's not like eBay covered that refund. They took it from Lewis. She said, when I looked at the buyer's feedback, other sellers all told the same story. The buyer claimed the item didn't arrive, but eBay gave a refund, even on items that were signed for. Worse, the buyer has been reported to eBay three times before this, and no action has been taken. They are free to keep buying items and claiming back the money, essentially stealing, and eBay is not doing anything about it. I could tell you these kinds of stories all day. The internet is full of them. Vintage designer handbags, quote, returned, but they had magically in transit transformed into dirty Forever 21 bags. Turntables returned completely smashed. A lot of sellers thought, yes, people were scamming, but also people were coming down with buyer's remorse and intentionally damaging things so that they could claim the item arrived damaged and get their refund. Don't impulsively shop on eBay, please. It hurts other people. Don't do it on Etsy or on Poshmark or anything else. 
a lot of the resellers I talk to find that their most difficult customers are these people who spent a bunch of money and regret it and are now doing anything they can to get their money back. Just don't do it. Just think about it for a day before you hit pay. Sellers were also finding themselves permanently banned for allegedly charging too much for shipping, although they were just using eBay's shipping labels in the first place, not shipping fast enough, or having too many returns in an era that I might add where 30 to 50% of items bought online are returned. I'm sure eBay is aware of this, that 30 to 50% of items bought online are returned. eBay sellers aren't allowed to exceed, I think, 2%. Meanwhile, to its customers, eBay promotes the ease and availability of returns. It's just unfair, and it destroys the livelihoods of these sellers. This is a good time to remind all of you, longtime listeners, that I've had multiple guests on this show who found themselves banned for life from eBay for no clear reason. And I will say that I used to sell a lot on eBay, mostly pre-2008, and I even then had a lot of issues with people who just didn't pay. Like it was, that was the biggest thing. I saw it picking up a lot of momentum. Um, And that was one of the reasons I stopped selling stuff on eBay, like my used clothes and other things that I would find because it just wasn't worth the headache. I took a trip through the eBay community boards because of course I did. And I found a seller who was banned after selling on eBay for eight years years, that's enough for a child to grow up, he was banned due to a higher than allowed return rate. He said, quote, I believe eBay is trying to be more like Amazon at the expense of pushing out the kind of sellers that created eBay and offer the items that Amazon does not. And clearly we need to put a pin in that idea because this isn't the first time Amazon has come up in an episode about eBay, right? It's going to come up a lot as we talk about Etsy as well. This idea that a company would want to become the Amazon of blank, that blank could be used records, vintage clothes, used books, or even handcrafted items. Hmm, the Amazon of handcrafted items. That that has a good ring to it. Yeah, that idea is definitely going to come back to haunt us. But we're still talking about eBay. So let's get back to that. In 2014, eBay spun PayPal off into its own company, and not just because the entire investor community was like, please, will you spin it off into its own company? There were other reasons involved too, but they all involved just like making a lot of money, right? The caveat of this whole thing was that there was a five-year agreement between PayPal and eBay requiring that PayPal serve at least 80% of eBay transactions, which meant that eBay also banned payment via check and money order for any of the auctions and sales on its site. Some sellers didn't care about this, but others definitely resented the basically mandatory PayPal fees that they now had to accept. And there was a lot of conversation about like, hey, doesn't eBay kind of have a monopoly here on person-to-person sales? And 
I mean, outside of like handcraft and stuff, because we're seeing that over on Etsy. How is it okay for them to force fees on us? Lots of conversation about that in the seller forums at that time. Well, John Donahoe stepped down as CEO of eBay in the midst of all of this, and he was replaced by Devin Wenig, who we'll be talking about a lot more in a little bit too. So remember that name. Well, eBay now, as of today, has been around for more than 25 years, which makes it what we might call a mature business. Maybe you're the kind of person who would rather call them a mature business, whatever. A mature business like that has to fight twice as hard to continue to be bigger and more profitable year after year after year, which means taking a look at the business and finding places where the company is missing a chance to make a dime, right? They've probably at this point have hit a ceiling in terms of new customer acquisition. There are no new products left to carry unless they start selling like human organs, right? So they have to look within, where are the other money-making opportunities? And in this case, eBay saw a big opportunity with payments. Because wasn't PayPal, hadn't PayPal always been, almost like a parasite making money off of every transaction on eBay as the payment method of choice? And weren't they also on top of that, making additional money off of sellers too for, you know, transaction fees? Last year, with eBay's five-year contract with PayPal ending, eBay created its own payment system, which transfers funds directly into sellers' bank accounts. And that sounds great, but actually sellers were not excited about this. And when you start to dig into it, you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. For one, transferring funds from this new payment system takes three to seven days versus PayPal's instant transfer. And eBay can also deduct funds for returns and other issues directly from sellers' bank accounts. And sellers who have been using a PayPal account and a PayPal debit card as their bank for years, there are a lot of them, are now being forced to open a checking account at a bank. In the seller's community, I found sellers advising one another to keep several hundred dollars of padding in their new checking account or their existing checking account at all times so as not to overdraft when eBay decides to debit a refund or fee directly from that account. And in fact, if eBay sees that your account is empty, your checking account, they will put a hold on any transactions, including new sales. The fees themselves seem to be about the same as PayPal, although some sellers are warning that they actually end up being slightly higher. I don't know. As of this June, sellers are required to move away from PayPal completely in order to continue to sell on the platform. There is no option except for the eBay payment service. Well, sellers are fed up because between the returns process, the increasingly fraudulent behavior from buyers, increased fees, and now this payment situation, they want to leave, right? But while some may leave, I saw comments on eBay's community boards about shifting to selling on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or going super old school and literally getting a booth at a flea market. 
many, many sellers will not leave eBay because they literally have nowhere else to go. And many of these sellers have been running a small business via eBay for decades now. This is how they pay their bills. This is how they support their families. There is nowhere else for them to sell. It's eBay or nothing. They are trapped and at the mercy of eBay's policies and its frequently sketchy, rude customers. I know some of you who sell on Etsy are hearing this and you think I'm talking about Etsy, but I'm talking about eBay still. (laughs) These eBay sellers have no choice but to accept eBay's policies which they continue to say over and over again are feeling more and more like Amazon's and less like the community that eBay began as in the late 90s. There's no mutual trust between buyer and seller, and there certainly isn't a sense of we're all in this together. It is not a community. It is a platform where people buy and sell stuff, and that is it. It is a platform that has a strange, a disturbing level of power and control over the lives and livelihoods of far too many people. All right, we're going to do something a little bit different for the rest of this episode because I have a crazy eBay story to tell. And I thought there was no one better to tell it to than Dustin Travis White, uh, my husband, the audio producer of this podcast, and major eBay aficionado. So, Dustin, say hi to everyone. Hi. (laughs) Um, So, Dustin, how long have you been buying stuff on eBay? Long time. (laughs) I I don't even know. I can't remember the first thing that I bought on eBay. The first record that I bought was a Joseph Jarman record, somewhere 01 maybe, but I think that I used it before that, but I don't remember what I bought. And what's the most recent thing you bought on eBay? Because I I know you still shop on eBay. I mean, so do I. Well, I bought a guitar neck, but it was out of stock because it was like a, it was like a weird made in China and imported into the U.S. For those kind of things, I find someone who's selling it actually in the U.S. I don't have to deal with shipping it or customs or any weirdness. Basically, you're still an eBay customer. Yes. And have you sold on eBay? Yes. Yes. I already know these answers, of course, but when was the last time you sold something on eBay? It's been a while. Anything that I've sold for a while now has been gear, and I've sold it on Reverb instead. And why do you do that? Um, the market's hotter on reverb for it. It's like the way that like, for instance, if you were selling clothes and you would probably, if you wanted top dollar, you wouldn't go to eBay, you go to like Depop mm-hmm, true. because the market, there are people who pay those prices. Mm-hmm. Reverb is, um, basically that for musical gear. So I asked you to join me today because I wanted to tell you a story about eBay that I was vaguely aware of. I'm sure at some point Apple News served it up to me and I skimmed it, but I don't think I knew how insane this story was. It broke last year during the pandemic, so there were a lot of other things going on. I think I kind of just cast it aside, but as I started reading and researching it more for this episode, I I was just like, Dustin needs to hear this story. So are you ready? Yeah. 
Okay. And once again, this is a story about eBay. So on June 15th, 2020, so last year, like I said, lots of other bigger shit happening in mid-June of 2020, right? The U.S. Department of Justice charged six different former, now former, eBay employees, all part of the corporate security team, with conspiring to commit cyber-stalking and tampering with witnesses. They ended up charging a seventh employee a little bit later. Who was eBay stalking, right? (laughs) You're already like, why would eBay be stalking people? I always think of eBay as like, you nice, right? So this was like a really shocking story to me. So the this eBay security team was stalking Ina and David Steiner, the husband and wife team that had been blogging about eBay on their website, e-commerce bites, great name, right? Formerly auction bites since 1999. Basically, this couple started their blog just about eBay. Over the years, they changed names to e-commerce bites because they also give guidance a little bit of opinion, but not even in a heavy-handed way, especially through a 2021 everyone's a troll on the internet lens. Like, it's pretty even middle of the road. So they also blog about Amazon and Etsy and basically anywhere that the average person could make a living as a seller on the internet. The U.S. attorney in Boston, Andrew Lelling, said this was a determined, systematic effort by senior employees at a major company to destroy the lives of a couple, all because they published content the company executives didn't like. Okay. Okay. I'm going to start by introducing you to the cast of characters here. And if you get confused, just holler because a lot of them have similar names. I also think I have like name blindness. So sometimes I can't keep people straight. So first off, we have Ina and David Steiner. And they seem like nice people who just make an honest living off of helping sellers build businesses on eBay, Amazon, Etsy, that kind of thing. Next, we have David Wenig, who became CEO of eBay in 2015 after John Donahoe stepped down. And if you all recall from earlier in the episode, John Donahoe is now at one of my favorite companies. And I mean that in the most snarky way possible. Nike. I know you're a big fan too of Nike. Yeah, love it. Love it. <laughs> uh, well, you remember that, that, that thing that I sent to you earlier in the week. Yeah, you should just tell everyone. I, I had some recruiter send me an email. Just like, and like the thing is, is like if you... Um, are in the right sort of industries you get tons of emails from just random like tech design related recruiters and it was for a job at nike and i never respond to them i just delete them um universally because i get just a bunch of them it's like junk mail uh but the so i got one that was specific to nike i wrote back to the recruiter bit and just said please don't ever send me any jobs at nike ever again thank you (laughs) I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Well, anyway, so David Wenig, he became CEO in 2015 when John Donahoe went away. And by the way, John Donahoe didn't even go straight to Nike. There were other stops in between where he made gazillions of dollars. So the New York Times describes David Wenning as, quote, maintaining a certain New York alpha quality, which paints a picture here, right? Like, we're getting an idea of who he is. Yeah. Next, we have eBay's new communications chief. His name is Steve Weimer, and he reported directly to Wenig. 
Previously, Weimer had worked for several Republican senators. So uh, he's that kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we've got like, like the worst SVU character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like some Republican operative right now. It's like so. welcome to white dudes. The story, right? So next, we have a Twitter user named Fido Master, aka unsuck ebay and his wife sold on ebay and he often felt that the policies regarding sellers were unfair which they have been for a long time so he would tweet about that his tweets i'm going to hit this point again later in the story rarely got a lot of likes this guy is not like he doesn't have like a million followers he's not an influencer he's just like an angry guy on twitter yes yeah but ebay's global security and resiliency analysts that's the name of the department kept a file on him and that file was enormous i feel like it was probably like the fbi's file on like rage against the machine or something today is this like a normal thing for like anyone on twitter or is this just like this guy the vibe i'm getting from this story and some other stories like not and some other analysis i read of the story is basically at this point in time ebay is really weird particularly in its security area because this was just a couple years maybe even only a year after that shooting at youtube and there was so much paranoia within this office that ebay would be next that there would be a mass shooting or terrorists were going to take them down and that like ultimately people were conspiring to destroy eBay. I, I know. This is like, I hadn't even thought of, even though I'm like an eBay customer, I don't generally think about eBay that much as like a big time player in the world. But this is this is where their heads were at this point. Okay. Very, very paranoid. So they're keeping files on Fido Master. F-I-D-O-M-A-S-T-E-R. And then lastly here, we have the head of eBay's global security and resiliency team, James Baugh. This team was tasked with protecting eBay from geopolitical and individual threats. Yeah, I'm told you, like this is like the vibe at eBay at this point. This is like 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 J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, it's like, but but eBay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, there's a whole cast of characters on that team, and I'll share some of them as the story begins. But I just don't want to overwhelm you with names. One thing that was interesting about James Ball, once again, the head of global security team, is that he was he was he called himself a film buff. And so whenever he was going to give direction to the team, get them hyped about a project, he would show them scenes from a film, you know, like Goodfellas came into play at some point. Um, And the best story that like really laid out the human element of this whole saga came from the New York Times, which I'll link in the show notes, but they really cited his film choices as each part of this story unfolds. And I I was laughing to myself. So this story starts back back in 2019 and what I like to think of as the before times when Ina Steiner wrote a blog post on e-commerce bites titled it's not even very exciting, actually. eBay CEO Devin Wenning earns 152 times that of employees, which, by the way, was absolutely true. Every year, you know, publicly traded companies like eBay are required to share an, an annual report. Very standard, right? And in it, they break down, like, how much the leadership is being paid. 
The report said that Wenig earned basically $18.2 million in total compensation in 2018. The median of the annual total compensation of eBay's other employees, when you take him out of the equation, was $119,000. The report went on to say, quote, the ratio of the annual total compensation of Mr. Wenig to the median of the annual total compensation of all employees is estimated to be 152 to 1. Basically, he gets paid 152 times the average employee. Well, and that other, the average other employee is also 120K. Yeah. That's not like, like, that's a lot. I know, no, I know. Yeah. And not that the differential isn't like insane, but like. Right. I mean, it's still it's a large salary, but this is also pretty standard for the industry. And to be fair, this article wasn't really snarky. It was just very straightforward. The comment section was a little snarkier and people pointed out like, okay, yeah, $119,000 sounds like a lot. But remember, all of the rest of the executive leadership is is included in that. So probably there are a lot of people who are making more like $30,000, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's pushing the average up by having those handful of executives, yeah. Uh, The Post did point out that in the previous year, his income was 143 times the average employee. So this was like a widening Mm -hmm. pay gap, I guess, right? The Post ended with this. This was the only snarky comment I could find in the whole essay. How interesting would it be to see a comparison of CEO pay to marketplace sellers? Exclamation point. So I guess the implication was that his, and this is if you're like looking for trouble here, the implication would be that his salary was coming at the cost of the sellers, which certainly people in the comments believed that basically sellers were struggling more than ever because of eBay's extremely pro-buyer policies. But I'm not even convinced that that's the point that this post was going to make. Like, once again, compared to the kind of stuff I see on blogs now, this was very low-key, you know? So I would not have guessed that this, this very sort of milk toast moment in internet blogging would be the start of one of the wildest stories I've ever read that involves adults and corporations. But, but this was it. This was the beginning of the story I'm about to tell you. I mean, I definitely said far more extreme things on Tumblr. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Pro- I say more extreme stuff what, every day. What, what year is this? 2019. You weren't on Tumblr then. Unless... Oh, yeah. God, I'd already said really weird stuff on Tumblr. Yeah, like exactly. A earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Weimer, you have to remember, he's the newish communications chief at eBay, and he reports directly to Wenig, the CEO. He texted a link of of this post to Wenig with the promise, quote, we are going to crush this lady. (laughs) I know this is already ridiculous, but it was a war, at least from Weimer and Wenig's perspective. Everything that Steiner wrote from that point on just irritated Wenig to no end. And he saw it all as like personal trolling. At the end of May, she wrote a 100% innocent post about Wenig promising to provide greater protection to sellers from buyer fraud. Because I don't know if you know this, Dustin, because you're a good, honest eBay buyer. There is a wild amount of fraud happening on eBay lately. Not sellers but buyers ina steider makes this pretty innocent post just like hey they're they're gonna work on this 
Weimer sees this, he sends a link to Wenig and he says, shockingly reasonable. These guys are just a bunch of jerks, right? Wenig replies, I couldn't care less what she says. Take her down. (laughs) The only other person that Wenig hated as much as the Steiners was that Twitter user named Fido Master. And James Baugh, the head of the global security team, the guy who loves movies, was convinced that either the Steiners were working with Fido Master to take down eBay or they were Fido Master and they were just like confusing the whole world. Once again, Fido Master did not have a lot of followers and he didn't get a ton of likes and retweets. Like probably the only people seeing his posts were eBay a couple friends of his. That's it, right? Yeah. So I'm not sure how he was taking down eBay, but this is the mindset we're dealing with here. And I think it really sets the tone for what's going to come next. There's just so much paranoia and like delusion here, you know? So eight days after Wenig sends that text message saying, take her down, a member of the security team at eBay, flew across the country to Boston, drove out to the Steiner's home, and wrote on the fence, Fido Master. Wow. That was already pretty ridiculous. Like, the story could have ended there, and you'd been like, that's embarrassing. I'll say this. To this day, no one knows Fido Master's real identity. However, he himself, he did talk to a New York Times reporter, once again, would not reveal his identity, but he had his own weird eBay story that happened in tandem with all the stuff that's about to happen to the Steiners. In mid-2019, he received a message from a new Twitter user calling herself Marissa. She looked to be in her early 20s. She claimed to be a former eBay employee and that she was in possession of, quote, extremely damaging videos of executives misbehaving. And she wanted Fido Master's help to get the video to the Steiners for their blog. Like, she wanted them to broadcast this video. The goal here, in case you're missing this, in case you're not as great of a schemer as the eBay team, is that they were hoping that Fido Master would admit that he was the Steiners Mm -hmm. or that he worked directly with them, right? right? And then they would know once and for all that, yes, Fido Master was part of this larger plan to destroy eBay. Fido Master, however, was kind of like, uh, well, like, you know that the Steiners literally have their email address on their website, so you just, like, contact them that way. And she's like, no, 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 I can't do that. It's not safe enough. And she was like, what if I put the videos on a thumb drive and I left them at a hotel of your choice? And he was like, no, I, like, don't want to be involved in this. You know, I think you need to see a lawyer and get help. And she continued to message him, and eventually he just, like, stopped responding. So that was the end of the Fido Master saga for them. In August, Ina Steiner wrote a post about a lawsuit eBay had filed against Amazon. It was pretty straightforward and only a few paragraphs long. Nothing too upsetting. But 33 minutes after the e-commerce bites article went up, Wenig texted Weimer, If you're ever going to take her down, now is the time. Weiner responded, on it. Then he texted Ball, the head of security, the movie fan, and his text said, hatred is a sin. 
I'm very sinful. I feel like I'm recounting a modern episode of Dallas to you right now. This is so ridiculous, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Ball was ready to ro- roll. Like he had been waiting for this moment. He responded, amen. I want her done. She is a biased troll who needs to get all caps burned down. So Weimer was on it. He's, Weimer is like over the moon about this. Ba is is so excited. He sends an email to his team explaining the importance of this mission, that the top executives at eBay wanted this done and they wanted it taken care of ASAP. He said, quote, I genuinely believe these people are acting out of malice and anything we do to solve it must be explored. He ended the email, whatever, period, it, period, takes, period. Is this what that show Mr. Robot's like? I don't know. I've never seen it. Have you? No, but I know that it deals with like, is it like technology or something? I mean, I hope it's all about eBay because as I was working on this, I was like, this is a movie I would watch. I imagine like Matt Damon plays the security guy, right? Um, I don't know. Some other like white dudes play the other guys. I'm not really sure. But but I like to imagine him being kind of bumbling and wearing Mm -hmm. like a tie that's too short for his button up shirt. Mm Anyway, sounds like 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 you, you really envision like this Cohen Brothers. Yeah, that's what I version. see. I don't think this needs to be a thriller because this is not a thrilling story. Yeah. It is a ridiculous story. So, they they have a team meeting, the security team, where they're like, "What can we do?" One person's like, "We should mail them a coffin." Everybody's <laughs> like, "Okay, put a pin in that. That might work." They come up with another strategy, which is basically to frighten and harass the Steiners, but have them think it was someone else. Then eBay could pretend that they had gotten wind of it and offer to help the Steiners, either to sway them to only write good, nice things about them or to just get them to give up the blog in exchange for eBay's help. It's, I know, I this know. Really, this really is as convoluted as like some Dallas... Plot. Yeah. It also reminds me of like something you might see in Black Monday, which I highly I cannot highly recommend enough. I love that show. So they called this the White Knight strategy. So now I'm going to introduce another character in this story to you and her name is Stephanie Pop. That's Pop with two Ps. She reported to Ball, who was the head of global security. The two of them encouraged their team to think of them as mom and dad. Just already, this is like so toxic and weird. Pop created a fake Twitter account with the name at Twi-L-A. Wait, is that Pop is in that woman's last name or Pop is in the dad since I'm supposed to think of them as mom and dad? No, it's Pop is in the Uh woman, Stephanie Pop with two Ps. So she creates this fake Twitter account with the name Twi-L-A. And the background story of this fake character was that he was an eBay seller from Samoa whose sales had been hurt somehow by the e-commerce bites blog. It's already so this is terrible. This is like if there like was like a corporate cat is corporate catfish, is that it? Could that be a show? I would watch that. Yeah. It could start with this one, right? Yeah, yeah. So But they've already caught them though, so you couldn't. Yeah, I know. We need we need a new one. Yeah. So Pop sits down at her computer and begins sending nasty tweets to Steiner with no response. So finally, this fake Twitter account tweets, I guess I'm going to have to get your attention another way, bitch. 
Cool. And on August 10th, which is also my birthday, it's crazy to think that this happened on my birthday in 2019, and we're coming up on the anniversary of this happening, a package containing a bloody pig mask arrived at the Steiner's home. 14 minutes later, that Twitter account tweeted, do I have your attention now? But like in all caps with a lot of question marks. And that was just the beginning of the weird deliveries. Next, a book titled Grief Diaries, Surviving the Loss of a Spouse Arrived, (laughs) shortly followed by a funeral wreath. Then a box containing fly larvae, a.k.a. maggots, a box of live spiders, a box of cockroaches, Copies of the September issue of Hustler Barely Legal arrived at the home of all the neighbors with David Steiner's name on them. I know this is like teenagers worth these pranks, right? <laughs> this is like, okay, and are they, so are they buying these all on eBay or are they ordering <laughs> them through Amazon? That's a good question. That's a good question since I know that eBay also hates Amazon. Because so, like, can you look on it? eBay right now for a bloody pig mask? Is that like a, a thing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's a category for that. Costumes, maybe? So, a few days later, Ba and one of his analysts, Veronica Zay, she's really young. This is like one of her first jobs ever. They fly across the country to Boston to engage in physical surveillance of the Steiners. His deputy, Harville, joined them. So the three of them have this goal, which is to put a GPS on the Steiner's car. I don't know why. I feel like they're just caught up in this, like, spy business all of a sudden. So they get to the house with the plan. Like, 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 like. Like, I just think of, like, Breaking Bad or something. Yeah, you, yes. like, think of, like, somebody putting, like, GPS. I don't know what like, the end game was, there was. But so they get to the house to put this GPS on. I want to say uh, the to- the Steiners had a Toyota. They get there to put it on. Well, the car's in the garage, and the garage is locked. So then they go to a hardware store where they buy gloves and a pry bar with the intent of breaking in to the garage. But that just never happens for some reason. Well, also, like... That's a lot harder to do than, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's not just, like, and I'm assuming that it's, like, a suburban house. So, like, like, what kind of bumbling crooks, like, showing up there and trying to pry open a garage door? Yeah, and these, like, white-collar, like, techie eBay dudes doing it. I don't The whole thing is so weird. Yeah. If you've ever tried to lift up a garage door at all. It, like the, once it's closed and like you know like there's a whole chain mechanism there like it's yeah this whole yeah. thing is ridiculous so meanwhile the steiners are freaked out by all this weird mail obviously you know so they reached out to the police and the police are like okay we're going to be keeping an eye on you we're going to put an unmarked car at the house we're going to follow you that kind of thing mm-hmm. so the next day the ebay gang as i'm calling them It's not a very good name. They decided to follow the Steiners as they drove around. Once again, what was their goal? Hard to say. It was like they were just in the moment. Well, if they were following them around, that would have actually been a good time to put the GP. Like, you know, like that's a pretty classic. Do you think that's like, what they were doing? You follow them to the mall, and when they go inside, like you put the tracker. But you know. why do they need the GPS? Right? I I don't know. Anyway, so. While, as they're following them around, one of them manages to, like, pull up on his phone at, an, like, a streaming feed of the police radio for that town. And they heard on the police radio that the officers had spotted them. So they gave up and went back to their hotel. By the way, they're all staying at the Four Seasons during all of this. And they're flying back and forth first class, like... 
This is like some <laughs> classic tech stuff. It is. It is. Like, except like just so ridiculous. Yeah, so, but like the idea of like no no expense was spared for the dumbest shit. <laughs> for the dumbest shit. So they go back to the hotel and they're pretty discouraged. But then they decided to put on their pranking hats and get back to some classic pranks. So at 4.30 a.m. the next day, a 24-hour pizza service delivered $70 worth of pizza to the Steiner's house and demanded payment, which just upset them and freaked them out more. At the same time, this Twitter account is just sending, like, just disgusting, sexual, nasty tweets to them, like, nonstop. More pizza arrives. More tweets. More pizza. More tweets. Then Craigslist ads appeared. One was for an estate sale saying everything must go. And nightly swingers parties at the Steiner home. Come knock on the door, ring the doorbell any time of day or night. Then the Twitter account, the troll Twitter account, just straight up gave their address to everyone. and was like, come over. So, you know, like I, there was a, t- a time period where there was a house that I lived at that was pretty uh, adept at, at, at pranks of, ba- <laughs> of various sorts. Um, involving fake keg parties that our neighbors that we were having a war with, having blah, 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 blah. So I'm embarrassed by how just like... like this is so amateurish. These guys have a credit card that they could do whatever with, and this is all they're pulling what off? What would you have done if you had a credit card? I, 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 I need a second because that's like... You know, but I'm just immediately like... You could have done the weirdest stuff. Like you could have just gotten so like... You know, like hired somebody to not like think that building a fence is like something, but like the idea of just doing something weird. Yeah. Like, yeah. To to de- the house and already having it paid for, you know, when you know they're not there. I don't know. I'm 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 not thinking of anything good, but like yeah, like we had years of pulling off. I mean, you know, just dumb, dumb stuff. So like I'm just this this. I know, like, what if you bought a whole bunch of blow-up sex dolls and had them just all dropped off in the driveway, like, blown up? I mean, that's getting better. That's definitely getting better. It'd be funnier, at least, than pizza. I mean, come on. Pizza's like what, like, middle school kids would do as a prank. So, anyway, the next day, uh, Harville, he flies back to the West Coast, back to um, San Jose, where eBay has its headquarters, and Stephanie Pop who's the one who's controlling this Twitter account, comes out to Boston to help harass the Steiners. They get a different rental car, and they try to follow the Steiners again. But this time, Mr. Steiner got a photograph of the car. And so this is the lead that the police needed. They immediately run that license plate. Some classic law and order shit here, right? They run the license plate. They find out it's a rental. They go to the rental place. The rental looks it up. They see that Veronica Zay who works for eBay, is renting it. They're like, okay, so Veronica Say is clearly following the Steiners. They do some more research, and they find out that the pizzas were being paid for with a gift card that had been bought just a couple of miles away from the eBay headquarters. Mm-hmm. They see that Veronica Say works for eBay. She's using, like, an eBay credit card to pay for the cars. I mean, it just all comes together. So, What do you think the total budget... <sighs> I mean, because how long were they in this Four Seasons... Just a couple weeks. Yeah, but a couple that's a lot. Weeks, a yeah, and I'm sure they're not sharing rooms. Yeah, You're they're right. Not sharing rooms. Like, yeah. Are you kidding me? Ver- Veronica Zay has her own room. Oh yeah, for sure. And they're also like flying first class. They had at least three different rental 
cars during this yeah, trip. That's what I'm saying. Don't forget the gloves and the pry bar, all those pizzas. Well, and you know that every meal is getting carded. Like that's everything. true. You're like, do you think they had a per diem? I mean, I doubt they. They probably just had a card, and we're like, yeah, do whatever you need to do to make, you know, th this happen. Like, so like, I bet they were going to Starbucks a lot. Because they were like, we need coffee to keep going. And then they were getting like protein plates and maybe buying some of those CDs that they used to sell at Starbucks. The Putamayo. <laughs> this record store I worked at, this guy used to like steal so many Putamayo CDs from, I'm assuming, Starbucks and sell them to us. And like, it was just like a thing where like he provided an ID. We followed, you know, like we knew that that's what was going on, but like we couldn't, you know what I mean? Unless you had like a reason you couldn't say no it was like right. a weird weird thing i don't know if i ever told you this but at one point my ex-boyfriend baxter and i drove across the u.s we drove from portland down to la and then across the bottom to go to philly and every time we would stop at a starbucks he would steal a ton of these cds <laughs> yeah they were apparently like the most easy to steal yeah cd like, <laughs> like like there's something about it it just like people steal them yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. we had so many and eventually we had we did figure out how we we just would offer them less for them because we had so many of them that we just like like we can't like we don't need any more of these um <laughs> but so it was like a system of instead of like being like this is stolen we can't buy this it was like we had so many so they were so devalued that at that point right it wasn't, wasn't right worth that it makes sense them. You know, the first time that I ever was able to turn in a receipt for like a, like a business expense, one of them was a receipt for Chuck E. Cheese. Wow. Yeah, it was whenever I... Was that when you were working for eBay, terrorizing no, people? No, it was whenever I, whenever I worked at Kinko's in the 90s. <laughs> okay. They like, I put me up at a hotel for this like weird training and you could, <laughs> it was so weird because they, Kinko, I mean, because you have to remember this is when like Kinko's was like giant you know and thought that like the world would always need they nobody would ever be able to print at home um <laughs> and like i could turn in receipts and uh for you know uh meals and stuff so i went to chuck e cheese just because i thought it was funny for the first time that i was able ever able to do this <laughs> to turn in a receipt from chuck e cheese that clearly said chuck e cheese on the receipt that's pretty good that's yeah. pretty good well, okay, so the police, they realize what's going on here, and they go to the Four Seasons where Zay is staying, and they try to speak with her, but she just takes off for the airport and flies, flies back to San Jose. So back at the eBay headquarters, they, the team begins to sort of retcon the story. So first, the managers ordered up these fake dossiers on the Steiners as persons of interest themselves they really wanted to paint this idea that the steiners were just like crazy and not to be trusted and that they weren't being stalked at all they were just making it up you know because they were either insane or wanted attention how could that possibly work though because if you've been like, yeah i know if you're surveilling them in some capacity and have been seen by the cops and you have information on these people, you've already connected the dots. You can't act like, what do you mean? We don't know anything about them. I know. Like, I feel like here's the, here's the deal here. It seems like the security team at eBay is bad at crime. And I find that concerning because a good security team should be good at crime so they can stop it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So these clearly, maybe these people weren't, the right people for this job in the first place. Um, so 
Then they also started sending one another emails pretending that they had just discovered that trollish Twitter account and were like really shocked and worried about the Steiners. Maybe they should offer them some help, you know, going back to this like white knight strategy. But regardless, it just all collapsed as the police closed in. Uh, The police called Zay. She got on the phone with them, but she had her boss in the background coaching her on what to say. They didn't know. And eventually they were like, the the trail of evidence is so massive here. Like, it's obvious. I mean, I've just laid out what they did. It was like they were bad at it, right? So eventually the police close in. They arrest Baugh and Harville and charge them. Um, Zay, Pop, and three other analysts were charged but not arrested. That doesn't mean that they're not, they're still going to court. They're still in legal trouble. They just never like arrested and booked them. And the charges for all of them are conspiracy to commit cyber stalking and conspiracy to tamper with witnesses because the managers also told everyone to delete everything from their phones that would connect them to this, which is illegal, right? So Veronica Zay was fired. Weimer he was fired. Weimer was the head of communications, fired. Wenig resigned later in the, the that month, saying it was clear he was, quote, not on the same page as the eBay board. No one mentioned the scandal when he left, but they did give him an ex- exit package worth $57 million. He later released a statement that he had done nothing wrong, He said, quote, there was no direction, no knowledge, no private understanding, no tacit approval ever. I was just speaking off the cuff. But once again, this is a guy in charge sending some pretty serious texts to his team. Um, In June of 2020, right after this all happened, Wenig was reelected to the board of General Motors, a position that pays $317,000 a year, which is a massive demotion for him. But remember, he did get that $57 million as an exit package. Uh, Mary Barra, who is GM's chief executive, called the cyber stalking scandal, quote, regrettable, but noted, quote, it didn't involve any GM business. Hey, it didn't happen here. You know? Yeah, it's like no big deal. Weimer, he also has a new job as the chief executive of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Silicon Valley. Wow. The chair of that board said the nonprofit was aware of what happened at eBay, but believes Mr. Weimer is, quote, a leader with integrity and was the unanimous choice for the job, just failing upwards, all of them. And that's the end of my story about eBay. Oh, I should add that e-commerce bites continues. I was actually reading a ton of posts on there today about Etsy. Um, they seem to just be moving along without really acknowledging what happened. The Steiners never actually spoke publicly at all about the huh. incident. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> like, I, I... Do you think any of these people, I mean, this didn't come up in any of the research I did, but I was wondering if maybe they at any point tried out some disguises. Oh, I'm sure they did. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's the end of the story. Uh, Dustin, I wanted to thank you for taking this time to listen to me tell you this story. I'm not by any means saying that like they should have terrorized these people, because obviously this is just like... No, I mean, this is terrible. This is like insanity. Yeah. I cannot... I this, still can't believe this is real. This is, this, you know, this is like them like trying to like um, to deport John Lennon because he was like, you know, this like threat to like the American way of life. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. Like it's, it's something as just stupid as 
something like that that someone at all who's just like saying like, hey, I have thoughts, you know, like they're, and they're, this, but these people aren't even that. They're like basically like regurgitating like basic news stuff with the tiniest bit. Dude, I know. I'm like, have you guys ever looked at Gawker or Jezebel or Reddit well, or Twitter? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, Gawker was sued into submission. Yeah, you know? it's so true. Like, it's true. You know, I mean, I think that's a really good point that if when when it had decided, like, listen, we're going to take the Steiners to court for their blogs, like a judge would have laughed in their face. Yeah, yeah. This was not even plausible. And and yet no one took a step back and thought like, hmm, that might indicate that we are just blowing this all out of proportion. I mean, this is such a wild story because I, I mean, I'm sure horrible, misguided stuff like this happens all the time, but have a thicker skin. Okay, so how does then... The um, which guy in this chain of command is the movie guy? Oh, Ball, the head of security. So, I kind of like thinking about this. Feel like he saw this as a way to play like dress up. I think you're probably right. Like he was like, finally, I have a mission. Yeah, like yeah. I can, you know, like like do this thing, and I can live out this weird fantasy. And I get this weird feeling that that was part of it was like playing dress up and like doing this whole thing and like having this elaborate but terrible charade you know like that was like Mm -hmm. that was the thing and it wasn't just like even about that like it was an excuse for that and then it just ran off the rails um (laughs) to say the least yeah (laughs) the most inept pranky crimes of all time Thank you, Justin, for allowing me to tell you this story. You know, I felt a little nervous about asking him to appear on the podcast because he and I are both, I would say, pretty big fans of Catfish, the TV show. And we get annoyed when Neve's wife is on an episode. Maybe we're just hypocritical meanies. It's really hard to say, but it was nice to tell that story to a mega eBay fan rather than just talk to myself into a microphone. So thank you, Justin for agreeing to do this after I ambushed you around 10 p.m. last night. (laughs) I'll be back next week with the next installment in the Etsy-sode series, where we'll pick up where we left off back in 2008, a big year of big changes for Etsy that will really set in motion everything that happens at Etsy now. In the meantime, if you have a story about your own experiences buying or selling on both eBay or Etsy, send them my way. You can call the Close Horse Hotline. The number is in the show notes. You can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and email it to me, or you can actually type out an email, and you'll find all of my contact info in the show notes. I want to hear from you. Send me your stories. I know you have them. My last thoughts on eBay are this. Do I agree with eBay's policies regarding sellers? Totally not. Do I think it's okay for their employees to terrorize bloggers? 100% definitely not. What a truly disturbing story about a dangerous blend of paranoia, hype, and lots of resources making people do bad things. I mean, I know Dustin and I laughed as I was telling it to him, but we both this morning were like, That is a scary story. It's a miracle that no one was physically hurt. If the police hadn't figured out who was behind it when they did, who 
knows how that would have escalated. But I'm not going to tell you to stop buying stuff from eBay because the reality is that buying stuff from eBay supports small businesses. Yes, it also gives more money to eBay, but as I cannot emphasize enough here, there are hundreds of thousands of small business people literally making a living by selling on eBay. I would rather you shop those people than say Walmart or Dollar General or Home Depot or any of the other big brands out there. Yes, it's really unfortunate that eBay is really the only viable option for most of these people to sell. And I know there are more options like Mercari and whatnot now, but none of those are reaching as many customers as eBay does. And that's mainly because eBay has had a monopoly on selling stuff via this format for a really long time. Until someone else grows another platform that enables small businesses to reach us in the same way that eBay does, keep shopping eBay. Small business is the future. It's how we dismantle the culture of waste and worker exploitation that has been fueling the profitability of big companies for years and years. But that doesn't happen if we don't support small business owners as much as possible. Not only shopping from them when we need something, I don't want you to go out there and shop till you drop and overconsume no matter where you're buying it, but shop small when you need something. And also be kind and good to small businesses. Remember that the eBay seller or that Etsy shop or that boutique downtown, these businesses are all actual human beings, just like you, trying to make a living while doing the best they can for customers. Don't be a jerk. Don't scam sellers online. Don't lose your shit because the USPS is experiencing delays. Accept the fact that you, the customer, are not always right. And don't leave bad reviews or mean Instagram comments because you're having a bad day. Just be kind And certainly, please don't impulse shop, then destroy the item so you can get a refund. That is extra messed up. Just be kind to one another. You and me, we have way more in common with a seller on eBay, a maker on Etsy, or that person selling at the flea market than we do with Jeff Bezos or John Donahoe or Elon Musk, any of the executives at these big brands. We have way more in common than we do with, say, Kim Kardashian, you know, or Billie Eilish. Let's stick together. Let's look out for one another and let's work together to change the world. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. I always ask you to do that. Maybe also consider giving a follow on your favorite streaming platform. My birthday is coming up this week, and while it will likely be spent at home, admittedly being a little sad because COVID cases are picking up in our area, I have an autoimmune disease that puts me at risk for a more serious case, so I'm kind of in my own self-imposed lockdown, meaning mostly no restaurants, no traveling, but I'll also be reflecting on how much my life has changed in the past year because of Close Horse, especially all of the rad people I've met and all the cool stuff I've learned. The ultimate birthday gift, if you feel like doing something, would be either a great review on Apple or just recommending the podcast to some people in your life. 
or don't do either of those things. I might be busy baking a cake that day. It's hard to say. Also, don't forget to check out The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We're in the midst of a two-parter about the processed food trends of the 20th century. And last week, we did an exhaustive, hilarious, and disgusting breakdown of the trendiest food of all time. And no, it's not bacon. No, it's not cronuts. It's jello. <laughs> Lastly, thanks as always to my other half and our special guest, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 